Bite of Courage is about ordinary people aspiring to live their best life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories so we can be who we're truly meant to be and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. To listen, go to biteofcourage.com or your favorite podcast app. everyone. Welcome back to Bite of Courage. My guest today is Dewan Warren. I had the good fortune of meeting Dewan when he volunteered at a community arts festival this summer. And after spending time with him, I asked him if he'd consider coming on to the show, and he graciously agreed. Indicted at the age of 18 for a series of robberies, Dewan was facing 40 years in prison. Charged with 16 years at the age of 20, he served eight and was released at the age of 28. Eleven months later, he committed a bank robbery, in which he was given a 34-year sentence. After serving almost 13 years of that sentence, he was released 20 years early for good behavior. He's now at home, a free man, at the age of 41. From ex-felon to reformed citizen, I'm honored to have him on the show today. Hi, Duan. Welcome. Hey, Mo. How you doing? Great. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. Well, thanks for being here. And you're home, finally, right? Finally home. Finally free. Yeah, I'm really happy for you. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Before we get into your story, I'd like to ask you what I ask all of my guests at the top of the show, and that is, what is your definition of courage? Courage is, in a nutshell, to me, doing what you should do even though it's something you don't want to do something that is inconvenient something that um, you may be scared to do but you go ahead and do it anyway because you feel like it's the necessary thing to do thank you can you tell me a little bit about where you came from and what it was like for you growing up Well, I am from Fort Wayne, Indiana, born and raised, and I grew up in poverty. I grew up in a predominantly black working class neighborhood, and it was tough. It was rough, kind of a dysfunctional home, to say it politely, had a situation where I was like seven, six, seven when crack cocaine hit and so unfortunately my parents not knowing what it was ended up getting caught up in that wave which changed the dynamics of my childhood from that of a secure nurturing environment to complete uncertainty and chaos however There were moments, there was relief to be found. I had a a beautiful grandmother who did everything right and raising her kids and still had enough in her to help raise her grandkids, um, me included. So when my parents was dropping the ball, she would pick up that fumble and score touchdowns with it. So it was hard, but... 
it was bearable because there was help from other family members. And what was that like once your parents got into drugs? Were they around or did they get into trouble? Did they help raise you or were you primarily with your grandmother? They did help raise me. I stayed with my parents throughout this whole ordeal until I turned 17 and moved out. There were moments where me, my brother and sister, and I'm I'm the oldest of the three, would have to live with other people. But they still really wasn't emotionally or financially or... They they wasn't present as parents. A lot of a lot of fighting between them, and a lot of verbal abuse towards the kids, which was just like it was the drugs. It was the drugs because um, you know I remember a different parent before the drugs. You know she did everything right. She even tucked us in bed at night, read books to us, made sure there was food on the table, food in the cupboards. Every time she come home from work, she brought trees. The house was clean. Bills were paid. And there were gifts under the tree for Christmas. Drugs came, all of that changed. Total opposite. And including her, her attitude and patience with us kids. So so your grandmother tried to pick up the slack? Grandmother did the best that she could. But it was only so much that she can do, living, being that she didn't live in the household with us old man was the same way you know he was more of an alcoholic but he really wasn't verbally abusive however their presence as parents was slim to none for most part of my childhood so what happened to you you served almost nine years in prison for a series of robberies and then after being set free at the age of 28 you made another fateful decision to rob that bank so can you take me back to that time in your life and tell me after being set free, what what led you to make that decision again? Or how did you get into the series of robberies in the first place? Well, first of all, let me mention that one of the robberies that I went to prison for, I was actually innocent of, but I was far from an angel. Had I not been partaking in the activity that I was partaking in, I would probably wouldn't have been wrongly accused and convicted. So I take full responsibility, even still, of putting myself in a situation to be wrongly accused. However, yes, I was doing things, being deviant, and I believe that it all, you know, just not having any guidance. And not having any structure. So I would come home from school, no parents around, bored out of my mind. And I'm, But I lived in the ghetto, where there's a lot of kids like that. So we would, kids would just hang out in the neighborhood, looking for things to get into. Usually it was mischief. The mischief led from stealing candy at the candy store to to put some food in our hungry bellies, to selling drugs, to put clothes on our backs. So the mischief would escalate as we would get older. Did you get into a gang? No, never really was a, a into a gang, but you, you run with a clique of fellas. So we could easily been mistaken for a gang. We functioned as a gang. 
but there was no formalities. I feel a bit clumsy in asking some of the questions. What I know from gangs is the Bloods and the Crips out in LA and killing people and drive-by shootings and Mm -hmm. there's violence and deaths and drugs. So I guess it sounds like you were able to avoid that, but the gang that you were in, you use the word mischief, which makes it sound, I know you take full responsibility and we'll get into some of this later, but the mischief for you, do you think it was boys will be boys kind of thing? Or did it get into some pretty scary stuff in retrospect? Do you think it was hardened criminal kind of activity? It started off as boys will be boys type of thing. And then it turned into more of a lifestyle. You know, I've I've noticed that young blacks, particularly young black males, are growing up without structure. The parent may be on drugs or the parent just may may be a single parent home. Usually it's a single parent home and the parent has to work 60 hours and it's usually the woman. So the young black male is left without guidance. So when he goes to school, there isn't really any room for that young black male to have a mentor. Exactly. The teachers really didn't have the resources to parent the child. So what would happen is, me in particular, I would feel left out, disenfranchised, unwanted, and misunderstood more than anything. So I was looked upon as a cancer to the school establishment. So I quit. It was too much pressure. Nobody understood. Nobody felt my pain, so to speak. So I quit. So once you felt like you couldn't get a break, couldn't catch a break. I would get cues for things I didn't even know about. People would treat me with disdain and disgust when they uh, addressed me. So as a boy, as a child, a teenage child, you know, only way that I knew to respond to that was rebel. So I quit. And so now I'm in this state of rebellion with nothing but time on my hands. And so are my peers who live and grew up in the same circumstances I did. Therefore, we turn to a lifestyle that would be found on the margins of mainstream. And there, you know, at first it started off as passing time and then it became a means to support our families once we became young men. And that's where the drug dealing and the things that come from drug dealing would occur. So just like with anything illegal, there's going to be other illegal activities that come with that, whether you're selling guns or selling drugs. People on the outside they see the gang banging, the senseless killing, and the straight up attack on society. It would seem like, but just so much deeper than that. So what's really going on is got these kids with you know no family, and so they they cling to each other. So you just like the blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. And, and kids having to make grown up decisions, but never had a true example to base their decisions off of. So you end up rising to the expectations of societal norms. 
yeah, while at the same time, you know, you got society looking down on you and, and they expecting nothing out of you. So what is a kid going to do? He's going to rebel. He's going to say F it. And they don't care about me. I don't care about them. So if that's how they feel, then I might as well do A, B or C and not care about victims and stuff like that. But most of that attitude is self-inflicted. People, you know, they're, you know, harming themselves, feeding off of themselves, like dog eat dog type of type of lifestyle. And so much of it is about opportunity. You rise to the level of expectations and the expectations for you were you're a nothing and a nobody. And you're all like that. You're all in the ghetto. You live in poverty. And this is what we expect from young black men. One may think that it's covered up and that uh, society are doing everything to help the uh, left behind, but it still shows just in the subtleties, like the tone, the different way that they address a young black male as opposed to an older black male, even. There's a difference in these young people, I know I did, picked up on it. And it makes you want to rebel as a kid. It makes you, you know, feel disfranchised and unloved. And, and so your heart, it hardens. And then next thing you know, only thing you have a concern for is those who who get you, which happen to be the disenfranchised peers. Sure. And so when you got in trouble and you served that first nine-year sentence for the, the robberies that you had committed... And then you were set free at the age of 28. I would imagine just like a relapse that it's easy to get tempted. And like you said, you're with that group of people. They seem to be the only ones that understand you. This is what society expects from you. And you found yourself right back into that situation again and made that fateful decision to rob a bank. Right. At 28, when I got out after doing eight years, I was trying to go the straight and narrow, something that I never did before. So there was a lot of things that I didn't know, that I, the tools that I didn't have. I didn't know anything about pace. I never learned pace in the household. I never seen it. So this is, there's many obstacles that I had to overcome. But I'm not going to say that you don't have the opportunity. It's just being prepared to take advantage of the opportunities. You know, a person has to be able and ready to take advantage of those opportunities. You know, there are so many things that a disenfranchised young black man has to overcome before he can even think about taking advantage of the opportunity. I was one of the fortunate ones who liked knowledge. I liked to acquire knowledge. And I think that's what saved me. But just like typical kid doesn't like to do their homework. So for a person who is not, who's dropped out of school and is sitting in prison, a lot of these, and and they're young. So my brain was still developing. And Mm -hmm. I came from a dysfunctional lifestyle. So just so happened that I, at a young age, discovered what was right for me and what was bad for me. A lot of these young men did not know this. So if you're not aware and conscious of the bad mistakes you're making, you don't look up and see the opportunity. So when I got out the age of 28, 
I was old enough to know better, but I still hadn't learned how to do better. There's a difference. Knowing and doing is two different things. So I can know not to do something, but we do things out of habit. So when the goings get tough, you resort back to what what's worked before. You abandon what is foreign and you do and Everybody does it. It just so happened we're talking about going from relying on a paycheck to faster money. And the faster money is the only thing that you know how to do for so long. So what happens is you got you making this fast money, so you you custom living a certain lifestyle. So now you try to live off a paycheck or salary, but you don't know that you have to make a lifestyle adjustment to fit that salary or hourly wage. Even a salary or minimum wage, people can't live on it. Especially if you never did it before. Right. And so what happens is you have all type of restitution and probation fees and then child support and your girlfriend who you're involved with may have two or three kids and so all this stuff these bad decisions on top of already all the expectations they make it hard for ex-felon to succeed they'll tell you to get a job but don't get a job on wednesday because you got to do these classes but what job do you know that lets you take wednesday off so that you can do some classes when they can go hire this other guy who don't have that problem so there's all type of little quirky stuff like that. And while these classes are informative, what good is the information if it's keeping you from being able to utilize it because you can't get the job? So what will happen is pressure eventually will bust the pipe. So a person, he'll start reverting to irrational thinking. He'll throw the consequences out the window because all he knows is bills are due. That's when what you say, and I like that word you do, is the relapse come. Then the relapse come, the next thing you know, the person looks up and he's back in a lifestyle that he really don't want to be in. And that's the case with a lot of disenfranchised folks. Sometimes it starts off as an uninformed choice, and then you feel trapped. You're like, man, you're miserable. I don't want to be here. I know I did this to myself. I responded irrationally to the hand that I was dealt. And now here I am in this lifestyle that I'm really miserable. In. And rarely would you find somebody who's living the lifestyle of a street guy who truly glorifies it. He may put up a front that he glorifies it because it's a cold world these streets are. So if he shows any weaknesses, he'll get eaten alive. But inside, he's miserable. Being vulnerable can be such a wonderful place to be because it really is the birthplace for change. But being vulnerable, unless you're going to war where vulnerability can literally mean life and death, you can't show vulnerability. It is a weakness. I would say the same is true being in prison or like you said, being a street guy. He may act the part and look as if everything's great in his life, but on the inside, he's miserable. But if he shows that kind of vulnerability, he's dead. So I would imagine that it must have been like that for you in prison. And I think you had told me at one point when we spoke about this, that the same judge who threw the book at you basically told you you were a lost cause at that point. Right, right. So what what did that feel like? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely. How can I forget? 
there was times where I just felt like the scum of the earth. You know, I just was, was so disgusted with myself, putting myself in that position. I was like, man, it wasn't even that serious. And that's when I noticed how the power of stress, stress will amplify a situation and make you do irrational things. When you say it wasn't that serious, you, you're re- not referring to the bank robbery, of course. You're referring to your life at the time right. wasn't so bad exactly. that you needed to make that choice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as I sat in the bullpen, having just got arrested, it was one of the lowest times of my life and as far as self-consciousness. I just was really disgusted with myself. How did you feel when you heard your sentence come down and you were told that you were going to be facing 30 years in prison? It made me feel almost like my life is over with. So I was tempted to lose hope. Thank God I never did, but I I was tempted to. And not talk about committing suicide or anything, but just lose hope as far as there's nothing to strive for. There's nothing to try to be a better person for. It's just, why am I even waking up in the morning? You know, Mm -hmm. it's just, I'm waking up in the morning just to walk to the child hall and and walk a couple laps on the rec yard and and, and watch some TV. That was what doing 34 years at 30 in a penitentiary meant. There were times where I felt that way. Yeah. But, you know, I never gave into that, however. I resisted it. How did you find the courage to not give into that? I mean, frankly, Dewan, I think it takes courage for anybody to live their life. But to hear you say that you didn't give up hope is really powerful to me because I did give up hope and I I had my freedom, but I was held hostage in my own brain. So I think it's really remarkable and admirable that you could be sentenced to a fate like that and not give up hope. And I'm curious to know how you had the courage to not do that. Well, it's different strokes for different folks. But for me, it was, I got to give all praise to God. I discovered God in the penitentiary. I clung to him and he gave me hope. He gave me reason to believe that I would be free one day. And so I said, well, if that's the case, then I better be ready. And I believed that more than I believed the sentence that the judge gave me. Wow. Even finding God in prison, there's still the uncertainty of ever being released. And I think uncertainty is torturous because you didn't really have God in your life before. So how did you come to find God and how did he give you hope knowing that you had no idea when you would ever get out? Well, being that I didn't know God before I got locked up, I had no connection to him. I wasn't aware of his presence. And then when I got in jail, I prayed to God. I was upset. I was mad. I said, you know what, God, I'm I'm never going to pray to you again after this because it's like you don't even exist. Mm-hmm. So if you exist, better do something. Show me that because I ain't praying no more. And sure enough, began to communicate to me. 
for an example, I would have a particular thing going on and I would just pick up my Bible and open it and start reading where it opened at and it was dead on. Just little things like that that showed me he was present. He, in fact, did hear my prayers and he was willing to have mercy on me. And that's when my faith in him began to grow. And so as my faith in him began to grow, I began to change. Because if, if true faith will convict you to walk in a certain way, you know, it might not be perfect, but you'll, you'll make an attempt to give it your best shot. It was like almost like a supernatural experience and how I found God, which began a, a whole new journey. It sounds like when you started to feel that kind of hope and when you found God, you knew that he could forgive you and in turn you started to forgive yourself. And it sounds like maybe that was the beginning of how you started your transformation. Absolutely. It definitely was the beginning of my transformation. Most definitely. It woke me up. It allowed me to view myself from a sober point of view. I was able to see the terrible things about myself, the attitudes that I had. All my blind spots were revealed to me. And so I began to chip at them, work at them. You know, I had a long way to go at the beginning. And that's why at 28, when I got out of doing eight years, because I found this, I started this journey at 20. I still had a long way to go at 28. I knew that I was not ready when I was released. And it wasn't for lack of effort, I tell you that. I sacrificed a lot um, trying to better myself, which is what most people may not may not know, those who may know me, like the judge who said that, you know, you're nothing but a minister to society. This is on this when she sentenced me the last time, and she said, only thing that's going to save society is if you have a whole lot of time and you get out as an old man. And so that's what my sentence reflected. But what she didn't know, that there was a man striving and that I had made strides. However, I was coming from such a dysfunctional place. I still had a ways to go. She was right. I was not ready, but it was not for lack of effort. And she ended up being the one that gave you early release, wasn't she? How it went was I won my appeal. And so she was forced to resentence me and reduce my sentence. However, when I came back in front of her eight years later or so, she noticed a change in me. She was able to see growth and development. She even went as far as to mention it. And what she did do, and she didn't have to do, was she reduced my probation from five years to two years. And she reduced, she gave me an additional like 17 months off, which was in her discretion. She didn't have to do that. So she did reward me, and I am very grateful and thankful for, for that, for those 17, 18 months. And she actually seemed to be impressed with the man that I had become and was looking forward to seeing me being successful into society just as much as I'm looking forward to showing her that I can be and will be successful in society. 
Have you ever thought about the people that you hurt and how to make amends to them? Absolutely. Where are you at? Bad part about that is I can't contact or come into contact with the people that were inside the bank. Nobody got hurt, but they still were psychologically terrorized. And so the only thing that I can do to give back to, you know, because society as a whole is a victim as well. So while I can't, maybe I can't reach out to the, you know, particular victims of the crime, I can repay society by being the opposite of what I was. I think that is the, the fastest way to remedy a situation with this opposite. So as I was taking, now I aim to give to society through my social work vision that I had by helping at-risk kids like I was, help them become aware of the opportunities that are available, become aware of the consequences of the decisions that the negative decisions or the irrational decisions that they make. I think that is the best way that I can give back because I know a little something about that. Yeah. It sounds like in some ways prison saved you. In a sense, it did. Who knows? Maybe I would have still found the right path by not going to prison. But the truth of the matter is I did find the right path in prison. Not to say that prison is this big place of rehabilitation because it's not. It's just a warehouse. That's all it is. The programs that they talk about on their promotional advertisements on the news and the, you hear the politicians talk about, it's all a fraud. There's no education. There's no books in the federal penitentiary. It's just one big warehouse. So how did you educate yourself? Well, I believe that if you want something bad enough, you're going to figure out a way to achieve an accomplishment or obtain. I wanted it bad enough. So I would find a way to, there was there were people that were well off in there and they would order books and I would read those books. They have programming, but it's a joke. I just squeezed the most out of what they did offer. I just find to get the most out of it but most of my tools came from outside the penitentiary. Resources that came from outside the penitentiary, mainly in a book. That people could bring you? No. People would buy us. Can't they couldn't send they couldn't bring it to us, but they can buy it. They can go to the bookstore and buy us a book. So over the years there's books floating around that people buy and they read, you know, most people don't apply it, but I did. Did you have any mentors? I know that was tough for you growing up. You had an absentee dad, and your grandmother basically raised you, it sounds like, and school was a struggle, and you got caught up in the wrong things. And you mentioned earlier that you really didn't have any mentors, but somehow you figured this out. So I know a lot of it was self-taught, but do you have any male role models that you look up to or that you did have when you were in prison? Not really. You know, prison is is like the last stop from hell. You know, you're not going to find too many positive role models in jail. I was the positive role model in jail, as flawed as I was and still am. Were you ever in solitary confinement? Yep. I got in trouble in jail. 
jail is a place where pretty much everybody is going to, if you're not getting in trouble, trouble is going to find you. One time I was sitting playing chess with a buddy, minding my own business, and a guy came up and decided he was going to come take the table that we were sitting on. And one thing led to another. You know, I stood my ground and ended up in solitary confinement for fighting. How long were you there? Probably like 30 days that time. There was other times where it was just straight up my fault, where I was trying to better my situation by doing something illegal. And it would end up in solitary confinement for one time I did 27 months. And I consider all of these my growing pains. I find that I had to go through things and make mistakes in order to know what not to do, in order to come to realizations I regret it, but at the same time, without them, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. The thought of hearing that you were in solitary confinement really has an impact on me. And again, forgive my clumsiness here, but you know, while I have a tendency to isolate, I know that it's a choice. Even if it doesn't feel like a choice to me, sometimes deep down, I know it's just a bad habit. It's still a choice. So I don't want to diminish what you went through in any way. It's really remarkable that you've come out the other side of this. I mean, what I know from being or feeling isolated is that it doesn't just shut me off from other people. It shuts me off from myself, which ironically shuts me off from what I need and what I want most, and that's to feel connected to life. And you were shut off at one point, you said, for 27 months. So I think when people are cut off from themselves in this way, they're actually more inclined to act out in unhealthy ways and to go to even greater extremes to connect with life. They they chase after the next fix. You know, the alcoholic needs more alcohol, a drug addict needs more drugs, a murderer may feel more alive and connected to life by having control over life and death. But no matter how bad one's choices may be, even if their choosing to connect to life is manifested by destroying it to varying degrees, we all have an innate desire to be fully connected to life. I think that's what motivates all of us, frankly. And to know that you were able to endure that is truly remarkable. And it just takes so much courage. So how did you live through that forced isolation in solitary confinement and find the courage to connect or reconnect to a life that is healthier and more wholehearted so that you could start to transform your anger and bitterness into gratitude because clearly you have moved to that place. I stayed laser sharp focus on what I wanted out of myself and what I wanted out of life. And so I was just determined to get there. That determination allowed me to see opportunities, even in a seemingly unfortunate situation. Solitary confinement gave me more time to analyze self, to go deep within self, to challenge self on a level that you don't normally have time to do in, you know, on a regular prison yard, let alone society. So in a sense, there there was an advantage to being in solitary confinement if you looked at it like that. I, see, one thing I think that helped me really become the man that I am today, even as a as a young man, was I was never I never became complacent. 
You know, some people accept the hand that they're dealt. I could never do that. And so sometimes that would lead me to make bad decisions. But thankfully, there was a point in my life where it caused me to start making better decisions, more healthier decisions, not only for myself, but for my environment as well. So it was that determination. This ain't right. Poverty is unacceptable. Dysfunctional lifestyle is just is, is unacceptable. I could do better than this. Life is better than this. Which is such a testament to your character, too, because you pretty much accepted where you were at and decided to make this change anyway, regardless of knowing whether or not you'd ever see the light of day again. I think that's true transformation. You know, one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I'm curious about how other people do it. Because I think you and I both have made some terrible decisions in our lives. And fortunately, I didn't end up in jail, but I could have. And when we strip all of this stuff away, what it comes down to is we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. I had to make all those mistakes, or I did. I chose to make those mistakes, and it was because of my thinking and my immaturity. And it actually feels very similar. The emotions that you went through to my life, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic today. And I can honestly say that being an alcoholic, a recovering one now for over 21 years is is one of the greatest gifts of my life. And when I was an active alcoholic, I made a lot of promises to people and that I heard along the way. And I promised to stop drinking and I promised to stop the self-sabotaging and I promised to get my life together and I promised they could trust me this time. This time, it would be different, I would say. This time, I mean it. But as well-intentioned as those promises were at the time, nothing changed until it did. But I had to get there myself. But I still was free. And that's what I think is really incredible about your story, Duan, that you did this not knowing that you'd be free again. And I think that's such a testament to the human heart of wanting to do good. Uh, and I thank you for that, Mo. A person can be free and still be incarcerated in their mind. A person can be incarcerated and still be free in their mind. I wanted to be free, but what I wanted more than anything was to be free in my mind. Mm, me too. I was looking for peace, which is what freedom is, peace. Peace is freedom, mental freedom, spiritual freedom, however you want to word it. Because I may not have got out of jail, but I'm still alive. So there had to be a way for me to enjoy the day. That's what it was all about. My spirituality was based off of that. My spiritual teachings were telling me that it's not about this physical world. It's about what's going on inside of you. So clean yourself up inside, and then it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You'll still have joy, if nothing else, which is the greatest feeling or possession to have. So uh, it made sense to me. So that's what it was about. Because if a person is saying, I'm going to do better, just, you know, just let me out, then he's lying to himself and whoever it is he's praying to, he or she, or, or saying it to. As soon as that person gets out, all that stuff goes out the window because it was just all about getting back out. So it never was about just getting out. It was always bigger than that with me. 
you could say anything to the people that you hurt, what would you want them to know? What I would say to them is just there's no excuse. There's no justification for making a decision to harm another person. However, you bring harm to a person. I can't even ask them to understand my plight or my background because they're not obligated. I just would love for them to know that I am truly sorry for causing anybody any hurt and pain. However way I've done it, even if it's just psychologically, hopefully they would know that it's genuine and hopefully, you know, that could help them heal and get over any type of damage I may have caused. Well, I'm I'm glad you got a chance to say it today, actually. I mean, it, it helps to hear you say it, I think even for me to hear you say it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. What's next for you? What's calling you to be courageous now? What are you hoping to do next? I have a strong aspiration to be normal. That is so awesome to me because it has eluded me thus far. Finally get an opportunity to just be normal, be be mainstream, to be respected and beloved by my fellow neighbor as opposed to being repulsive and feared by them. Of course, I have dreams, goals, and a way that I want to be able to demonstrate that measurement. Um, I have aspirations to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my own small business or two or three. But, you know, it's just one step at a time. I also would like to start a family. You know, it's the simple things in life that interest me now. Being older, it's not about material things. It's just about the relationship, the experience of the moment. In a sense, I have everything that I want right now in this moment because I'm able to enjoy this moment. That's the most important thing to me. What do you think your gifts are? What kind of business would you like to get into? I know you mentioned social work earlier, too. But that's more of a passion. If money wasn't an issue, I would just do social work all day and night. However, we live in a society where everything costs. I look at my situation, I know that I am a felon. My background is stained. So there will be glass ceilings in certain industries. But it just so happens that I do have an entrepreneurial spirit. I always wanted to own my own business. And that is one area where... It's all about the business plan. If you got a good business plan, if you know what you're doing, you're going to get a loan. That's what these financial establishments are for. They're, they're trying to make money, too. They're going to be less discriminatory than some real estate agent selling a house out in the suburb. So basically, it's all on me. I want to eventually be able to buy some real estate, buy some franchises, family dollar, dollar generals or something like that. I'm going to start off with a handyman company so that I can become a qualified investor. That's what I want to do. I want to be an investor. I got a vision. I got a vision, Mo. It sounds like it. I definitely got a vision. Is there any way other people can help you or hold a more compassionate space for you as you're out there trying to get acclimated and integrate yourself back into society? You know, only thing that I would add is for a fair chance. When you see me out there in society and I'm putting my applications in for a job, for housing, when I'm walking through a convenience store, treat me like I treat you. 
if I can get that, then I'm going to be successful. And if I'm successful, then society is a better place. Well said. No judgment. No judgment. Give me a fair shot. I hope that for you. And I really appreciate you having the courage to be here today and for making yourself really vulnerable and and for owning up to what you did and for sharing it with us and for showing your true heart. And I wish you nothing but success and happiness. And I feel like you're going to do great things. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mo, and allowing me to share my side of the story. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Bite of Courage. If you'd like to learn more about my guests or you'd like to leave a comment, please go to biteofcourage.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to check out my blog, humormewithmo.com, where I write about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. This is a trio production, all rights reserved.